Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to the Simulcast November Journal Club episode. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined as usual by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Uh, very good and uh, looking forward to having a good chat tonight on this most auspicious day. It is. It is Jesse Spurs' 40th birthday and he's had many well wishes on Twitter and various other platforms, but uh, we're just going to give him a big happy birthday here as well. Uh, while we're on achievements of the Simulcast team, Jess Stokes Parish. Uh, as some people might know, we just released an episode of her talking about her work, research and practice in Moulage. If people are interested and haven't seen it yet, go back to that. But she also has put in an appearance at the Australasian Simulation Congress, which is on at the moment. She was facilitating a panel. So congratulations to Jess Stokes Parish as well. All right, but we're going to do some articles, hey, Ben, will we jump right in and think about uh, what we're talking about in November? Yeah, let's do it. All right, well, I'm going to do the first one, and this is an article from Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training, and it's titled Rapid Cycle Deliberate Practice Improves Team-Based Resuscitation Education, and this is by Lemke and a team from Baylor College of Medicine at Texas Children's in Houston, Texas. And uh, this is not a new topic, but I'm going to give a little bit of background from their paper, and that is, of course, that when it comes to paediatric resuscitation, teamwork matters, adherence to guidelines matters if you're trying to look at outcomes for paediatric cardiac arrest, and we know from lots of other literature that simulation training seems to help. But, of course, uh, we'd like to know what kind of training. And so this article describes two Uh, potential types. One is something familiar to many of us, which is post-simulation debriefing. That's what they've termed it, where we have the scenario and then we take the team and we kind of explore what went well, what didn't, what performance gaps there were in a relatively long post-sim debriefing. And an alternative format that, uh, again, this is not the first time we've heard of it, is rapid cycle deliberate practice where the cases are divided into steps, uh, there's more stop-start, and each phase kind of builds on another element of the algorithm. So there's a lot more coaching and, and short, sharp debriefings during the scenario. Now, there have been comparisons of these type of things before, and they have had somewhat variable outcomes. Uh, the authors of this paper Uh, conjecture that maybe cognitive load theory may explain some of that. But here, this study sought to compare uh, time to first defibrillation in a simulation, that was their outcome measure, depending on whether a team had training via this uh, post-simulation debriefing or the rapid cycle deliberate practice. So even before we get into their data, Ben, this is... um, uh, interesting and lots of work in pediatric resuscitation, isn't there, on the rapid cycle deliberate practice? Yeah, and we recently launched our own rapid cycle course, so we've been having to deep dive into it a lot over the last year. Uh, and I guess I was curious, um, I've certainly got a lot of enthusiasm for it as a technique and was certainly very excited when um, Betsy Hunt's original paper uh, came out and we talked about that in the Journal Club in retrospect as a classic article. And I really enjoy this medium for teaching this particular skill. And I guess the first question I had when I thought about this paper was, well, is this a question that actually needs to ask? And I think actually this is quite a clear, discrete skill that 
seems like it's going to benefit from a particular teaching technique. So I thought this is a pretty reasonable thing to compare, even though sometimes I don't always love the whole what method of debriefing is better than another method type thing. But it really worked Mm. for me here. Mm. Uh, Hopefully you can give us a nice description about what rapid cycle deliberate practice means in your book because I have a feeling that this is a term that is uh, used but I wonder how much homogeneity there is when it is actually practiced Uh, but while we're thinking on that uh, I will tell you what they actually did in this paper so they were doing in their emergency departments this is in Texas uh, sim-based resuscitation training for teams of residents that is trainees and nurses medical trainees and nurses and their teams of three to four residents and two nurses got randomised to either the rapid cycle deliberate practice or the post-simulation debriefing groups. And they had 20 groups in one and they had 20 groups in the other uh, arm of the study. And uh, they measured some baseline characteristics of the groups. They also measured a thing called the NASA task load index, which is one of the reasons I put this in that I'll come back to later, uh, which is a measure of basically uh, how tough are the mental, physical and and time-based task demands and how much frustration, effort and performance are there in the individual reactions. And if people are interested, we'll put a link to that or it's in the link in the paper. The other outcome measure they used was they their team was assessed on a pulseless VT cardiac arrest and they looked at the time to defibrillation, the time to adrenaline, which of course they called epinephrine, and the time to first compressions. And, drum roll, there was a difference in the time to first defibrillation, 100 seconds versus 163 seconds favouring the rapid cycle deliberate practice group. Now, there weren't any other differences in the quantitative measures on the performed scenario. There was one element of that NASA task load index that was different. But I think their real primary outcome measure and their take-home method here is that teams are better at getting organised and doing an early defibrillation if they have gone through the rapid cycle deliberate practice. And interestingly, their training, training scenarios they used actually didn't involve a defibrillation. So I thought that was uh, an important measure of teamwork, not just uh, copying a skill. I thought that as far as trying to compare things, I thought this was a pretty reasonable thing to measure. And I get there's always that tension between what can you measure in a relatively unambiguous way to prove educational impact or difference between two educational strategies. And so I thought the things that they had chosen was quite fair. Um, In particular, I, again, really quite liked that um, sort of cognitive load measurement tool that they had in terms of not just thinking about, well, what did this mean to you in terms of your timings, but also what impact has that training had on the way that you think and approach this complex task at a very different level so i thought this was pretty smartly designed in many ways i would have loved to have seen as the authors themselves kind of acknowledge some uh later data about skills retention because i know that was certainly part of the theme of betsy's original paper as well that this was retained longer at a higher level of skill um, rather than just an instant measure in the day Um, But I really, yeah, I thought it was pretty slick with a very impressive Mm -hmm. sample size of staff to get through. This was a big uh, load of work for the Texas children guys, and I take my hat off to them. 
Absolutely. I think it. you're right there. Uh, my real take-home was it just underlines the challenge of finding the right measure for team performance, and I think we see that over and over again, don't we? And uh, whether you construct these teamwork measures or whether you use something that is an accepted clinical one, knowing that it's a, a, a proxy measure for it in simulation. And uh, I'm with you. I think one of the things that we are seeing is stuff like the NASA task load index increasingly used because we recognize this as one of those things. Uh, one of the other things that I would just say is I just feel like the pediatric critical care community have got it together with a lot of this work because it seems like there's a huge amount of work that's done. And I know you've connected with those Inspire Network people and a variety of others, but it seems given how rare what we actually talked about here, a pulseless VT arrest in a child, <laughs> I kind of thought, wow, that's a lot of effort to find an outcome in something that actually would happen, I don't know, once or twice a year in, in the, even a big emergency department. Look, I think, uh, you know, and I know that you are the queen of the 1% marginal gains, but this is the 1% of those 1% of the marginal gains. And and certainly um, I can tell you as, a, you know, a pediatric emergency physician who's been working in kids' emergencies now for comfortably a decade, uh, the only time I've done CPR was in post-cardiac ICU. Like, it's never happened to me. It doesn't, does happen in our department. Um, so... What I would probably argue is that I think I'd postulate that maybe because in pediatrics, actually, most kids are pretty well. A lot of our emergencies are actually um, high acuity, low frequency type events. Mm. And so I wonder whether that's influenced the culture where we've actually just accepted that the things where we really value add are actually just going to happen pretty rarely and we have to work hard at getting good at them. Um, Mm. And I wonder whether that sort of decreased the threshold for us accepting that we're going to have to work very hard for those marginal gains in rare events because most of the things we actually resuscitate are very, very rare. Mm, I think that that actually makes sense to me and the people worried about and, hey, it's children. And I think there's probably also a cultural component as well. There's just a relationship between, you know, Texas children and Betsy Hunt's work and the Inspire Network and... Uh, the American Heart Association statement for resuscitation education. Like there was a lot of interplay between these big players and these groups. And it's clearly something they're very, very passionate about on a lot of levels. Yeah, it shows how effective collaboration can be when it comes to research agendas. Well, thank you. Uh, As I said, good article. I think that encourages us to think about that approach for those kind of skills. But maybe you're going to tell us a little bit now, take a uh, institutional ethnography approach. Yes, absolutely. So I was really excited to read this paper because uh, it caught, taught me in particular a very cool new catchphrase or uh, word that I'm going to use heavily in meetings in general. So the paper that we're looking at is called Getting Everyone to the Table, Exploring Every Day and Every Night Work to Consider Latent Social Threats Through Interprofessional Tabletop Simulation. And it's by Ryan Bridges et al. and was very recently published in Advances in Simulation. And so this is described uh, and uh, named as a methodological intersection article. Uh, which I quickly Googled and couldn't find a different definition for. But I'm guessing, Vic, uh, as one of the editors of Advances, is this the sort of paper where you're looking at a theory from another specialty and seeing how it intersects with simulation? Would that be a fair summary? Yes, we added two new 
article types to the journal in the last 12 months. Uh, one was this one. One was the advancing simulation practice, which is a sort of best practice, 12 tips type synthesis of literature and practice. Whereas this one, uh, as Ryan sort of indicated, is about drawing from methods from other areas uh, and intersections, I guess, explains that. And I guess as you go through the paper, you'll see that there's a, quite a few intersections that go on here. Absolutely. So uh, the article essentially describes the creation of a tabletop simulation informed by institutional ethnographic principles. And essentially the goal of it was to explore work as done during daylight and nighttime hours by playing a game where participants think out loud and describe the challenges and motivations that drive their thought processes and actions when they're performing their usual work-related tasks. And the authors describe by how playing this, you could sort of speed through 24 hours at the hospital relatively swiftly while gathering useful data about the thought processes and the ways that colleagues interact within that environment. And they start the paper with a really nice sort of gently provocative statement by saying that simulation education oscillates between translational and educational purposes, which sometimes means that both educators and researchers might not consider a key driver of individual and teamwork, which is the taken-for-granted everyday and every-night work of healthcare professionals and how it is organised by social or structural forces. And so they describe, for example, safety threats might arise from how professionals' work is governed by policies, guidelines, pay structures, laws, and regulatory pressures that are impacting their thinking about as well as their actual scopes of practice. So to start exploring these specific issues, the researchers identified a tabletop simulation, such as might commonly be used in emergency disaster planning. We certainly have sort of annual Emergo exercises, for example, as a great way to probe participants about work as done. And, and in some ways, they describe it as um, a prolonged sort of interview with prompts. Uh, because tabletop simulation is mostly verbal, uh, it allowed for opportunities for facilitators to actually probe deeper into the perspectives that are shared and explore them in the moment with some sort of narrative prompts. So on the back of a previously successful pilot, the authors created three new sim scenarios, and each one was designed to focus on exploring a key interprofessional challenge during consults or transfers of care that had emerged from data they'd previously collected from incident analysis team reports, field observations, and interviews. And that seemed to me a really nice place to start. They've already identified some points of potential conflict or challenges and zoomed and double-clicked into that in a very innovative way. Any thoughts there, Vic, before I keep going? It reminds me of that article we did last month where we were talking about the visually enhanced mental simulation. And they were kind of talking about a tabletop with some of these triggers as well. They certainly weren't taking the, well, as described here, very sophisticated approach to then drawing out the information. And I think that's where they've clearly got a research lens here on what information they're gathering as opposed to just using it as a practice run. Yeah, I think for me this was uh, a very low resource efficient way of looking at a complex problem and indeed equipment wise things were pretty simple Vic I know as uh, you will have been a, as upset as I was that there was no like 20-sided dice there was no dungeon master there was no hand-painted Joan of Arc midwife combat battle figurine no VR headset no <laughs> exactly it was a disgrace instead what they had was two rooms uh with each having a facilitator in there to allow them to kind of separate staff working in different simulated areas of the hospital 
So one room, for example, might have staff having conversations about what's happening at the bedside and the other room might be having conversations about what's happening at the nurse's station. And the facilitators had conversational cue cards to explore fundamental questions about what do you do in this type of situation and then following it up with things that explored why they did it that way. And for their study, what did interest me a little bit was they recruited quite senior participants uh, within their unit uh, to play this out rather than sort of the everyday plebs who might be doing the work on the floor. So they had seniors in unit decision-making, leadership and education. Uh, but they stated that this was to probe how that process might also inform policy-making decisions. So they ran these sims about five times over in 2019 with different groups. And during the sim, participants would get the stems, explore with facilitators their motivations or decisions, and then call other participants and role-play certain conversations. And the facilitators had to keep each other up to date on where they were timestamp-wise, which sounds pretty tricky. Uh, and surprisingly to me, they were able to actually talk through about 24 hours of hospital time of a particular patient in about 20 minutes, which was then followed by a Pearl-style debrief afterwards. I think what interested me here is that the researchers in this moment were looking at both the outcome of the simulation for their hospital while simultaneously taking field notes on the professional interactions, but also trying to look at how does this sim work as a tool to explore this question. I think uh, it really underlines the question, is sim the modality through which we are exploring work or is this the pre-work for more sims by which we are testing an improvement in work? Now, of course, all of these things are very good to do, but you're right. I think it's a worry. I suspect it didn't happen with this group because they clearly had researchers who were separate to their facilitators, etc. But I guess for us, probably is worth being careful and clear with our participants, I suppose, what their role in this is. Are they testing out a better way or is this sort of early pre-work understanding the context by which to build a uh, more proactively designed simulation? Mm. So, you know, when it came to what they learned from this, they learned that this generated rich and meaningful data about workplace challenges. For example, there was this discussion about how the fetal heart rate alarm goes off at the nurse's station. And so even though a particular group of nurses might feel like they're not supposed to get involved in a particular case, they're kind of implicitly dragged into the case a little bit by hearing the alarm and having to sign off that they have heard the alarm. And so there's this subtle, there was an acknowledgement, there's this subtle feel of transfer of some responsibility onto them for the case. It's a really nuanced, granular stuff. They found that it helped participants externalise their perspectives on a case uh, and that led to meaningful interactions and reflections. And I think they also identify because you're not asking people to perform in a simulation like you might do in real time, there was less socio-evaluative stress and more emphasis on conversations and sharing. They describe the process as generating a map, not of work as it's supposed to be, but instead a satellite image of how work is currently actually happening. And as such, an opportunity to identify something that we call latent social threats, which I'll go into a little bit more deeply later. In the reflections on what they change, they describe, you know, they'll probably add more visual prompts in the future, like ETG changes, uh, traces. They'd allocate more roles and separate the facilitator and the person running the narrative of the sim. Uh, and they bring in this concept of latent social threats, which they identify as the unforeseeable or even unseeable social factors that can contribute to error or communication breakdowns like medico-legal concerns and the influence of policies, norms, and culture. 
further, they identify that the term latent social threat uh, can, when, with respect to the ethnographic principle of disjunctures uh, represents gaps between the official representation of practice, like a guideline, and what that actually looks like in people's everyday experiences and uses of their knowledge. So I guess to try and simplify that a little bit, I feel like they're basically saying that there are complex social reasons why we may be having a perfectly decent guideline, for example, but the guideline might not be enacted, even though we know it's supposed to be enacted, for a wide variety of complex interpersonal reasons uh, that can be really useful to identify. In summary, they argue this is a viable strategy to gather the clinician's descriptions of the what and the whys of their work without conflating it with their individual or team competencies. It sounds like it's a pretty smart strategy to me, particularly if it's used in combination with other interventions later on. But it was pretty informative. Yeah, I agree. And I think it draws on some principles that people have been trying to uh, encourage us in simulation for a while, and that is to explore what's underneath our observed behaviours. And I think this is another way of doing that through asking people and uh, through having some educated ways of prompting them to reflect on that. My only thought about the latent social threats is I'm not so sure that these threats are so latent. <laughs> I think... One of the things is that this makes overt some things that possibly those clinicians definitely know. And I think they realise the implications of them, but I think one of the benefits they maybe underemphasised here uh, is the imprimatur that this process gives clinician perspectives. And I think the other thing I was curious about was potentially, particularly when they were choosing leaders, is that depending on who you, re you recruit to this, there was a little bit of a theme that this is representing work as done. And I think there's still an element here of there is still a socio-evaluative role-playing element to this. And it sounds like it's getting closer to work as done and starting those conversations, but we're all still filtering what we're supposed to be saying, what like work actually looks like um, and what's going on beneath the surface. So I don't think it's always going to replicate completely accurately this perfect satellite image. I think it's still in some ways a game that we're going to be assessing how the rules are played. Yeah, you've got to wait up with what's wrong with a traditional ethnography. Why aren't the ethnographers actually just hanging out in the labour ward for 24 or 7 and then they'll find out all this stuff. But I suppose it's uh, the think aloud bit that is the particular benefit not that that can't happen within a traditional ethnography as well all right i knew we were going to spend more time on that because this was so interesting but we probably should move on to the next paper should we yeah sounds good <laughs> all right well for this next one we've got quite a technical paper uh, so this paper is called three-dimensional modeling of complex pediatric intracranial aneurysmal malformations with a virtual reality system and this is by Jan et al and it is indeed a technical report in simulation in healthcare from August 2021 and we don't do too much technical stuff, so I'm really pleased we're doing this one, Ben. So I'm just going to tell you the aim. Basically, they said they were out to review the use of surgical simulation at their institution, that is the University of California in San Diego, for complex pediatric aneurysmal malformations. I'm going to step it back a little bit for those of us who are not uh, neurosurgeons, uh, and that's most of us. Uh, so it's, there is a technical report, there's no doubt. Uh, but really the emphasis is that they start out by saying, look, surgical simulation and virtual reality are pretty widely used now. And they're used for things like uh, studying anatomy, for procedural training, for people who are new to procedures, for real-time mental rehearsal, 
for credentialing if we're trying to say people are good enough to do a certain procedure and also obviously for continuing education and, as we might point out, for patient education so you can give a much better picture now. So we know these uses are out there. We've seen some papers in relation to those. And the technology is now so good that if you put on your VR headset, you can actually visualize these very tiny neurovascular structures in three dimensions. And the idea is that then you can rehearse an operation before you actually have to do it. And they suggest in here that that leads to some decreased complications. So here, uh, they basically wanted to it's a case series of their author's experience uh, in the specific context of paediatric patients with complex cerebrovascular aneurysmal disease. So these are problems like little aneurysms in the brain where the blood vessel has turned into an aneurysm and it runs the risk of rupturing. So we're trying to think about what surgical interventions might prevent that happening, either by clipping or by um, causing a clot in one part of that coiling. So how did they actually do that? As I said, they just did an audit of uh, the senior author's case logs and they had five patients and they set out to identify and characterise the outcomes of the patients who had these very specific middle cerebral artery uh, aneurysms. And what they basically do is they take the CT scans and the MRI scans and they turn that into this uh, SRP system and then the doctors put on their Oculus Rift uh, goggles and then they can see these things in three dimension. They can look at it from above, below, on the sides. And then also they can potentially connect this to little handhold controllers or touch haptics and they can actually practice doing the little procedures or the big procedures on these little vessels. Uh, so the surgeons can see the pathology and anatomy, how the blood vessels are connected to each other and also what's the relationship between the blood vessels, where the bones are, where the brain is and other structures and they can actually practice as I said that virtual clipping so it's just really uh, and they go into quite a bit of technical detail that I obviously won't do here but they describe in essence that they feel like it helped them to plan their treatments decide whether they were doing uh, open procedures or whether there were endovascular procedures that could be done and avoiding complications because of course if you're too aggressive in the clipping you might cause a stroke um, and if you do damage to the blood vessel without getting that clipping right you might cause bleeding so they certainly felt like it had made a difference they didn't have measures of this this isn't something you're going to randomize um, but I think here the surgeon's ex descriptions of their experience is probably the best uh, outcome that they can have so it seems to me this is just like a hey wow of technology Ben. I agree I think it is a, a hey wow of technology and I thought it was uh, whether or not you're a neurosurgeon or not a really nice example of augmented mental rehearsal um, and I appreciate that while we can't draw heaps of conclusions from this particular paper, I think it makes absolute sense that this sort of preparation would help at an instinctive level. Um, and I think it's important to highlight that specifically for this type of condition, any kind of marginal gain is going to be in some ways more valuable. So when you're talking about operating on a neonate or an infant's brain, for example, they've got a blood volume of 80 mils per kilo that means if they're like a 10 kilo one-year-old you've got 800 mils to play with total uh, and so if you lose a coffee cup of blood from a, a bleed intraoperatively uh, you've lost you know a quarter of the circulating blood volume very quickly and so you have a very high stakes situation 
socially, culturally, because you're operating on a baby, but also just from the anatomy, its size, and the impact of blood loss and making a miss. So it seemed like a very uh, sensible, intensive level of preparation to do for something this high stakes, and it seemed like a good match in that way to me. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it paves the way for lots of other procedures that maybe aren't as high risk but might be more commonly done by more of us, just thinking airway management, central lines, all sorts of other things that maybe the time frame whereby we can map these structures with ultrasound or whatever and then give ourselves a little go at something before we have to do it uh, could potentially even be beneficial in our context in the emergency department. It also makes me think about uh, robotics and thinking, well, how, what's the connection between doing this kind of work and then actually having the machine do the procedure because they can do all this uh, strategy beforehand and not having to rely on the very fallible human hand. This is true. This is true. This is true. All right, well, watch this space. Looking for more and so pleased that the surgical uh, field is using the technology to this optimal advantage. Mm. All right. All right, but from this to a little bit more talking. So I, I, this is an older paper. Uh, it's from 2015. The title of this paper is Expert Practice of Video-Assisted Debriefing, an Australian Qualitative Study. Uh, it was published by Christian Crow et al. Uh, in Clinical Simulation in Nursing in 2015. And this isn't, a, this isn't a topic that we've talked about in depth, particularly in simulcast so far, I don't think, and something that comes up relatively frequently. So this is a qualitative study from a little while back now. As I said, it's from some of our favorite qualitative researchers, and it's about assessing what video-assisted debriefing brings to the table from the perspective of local Australian debriefing experts. Uh, they define video-assisted debriefing as the use of audio-visual capture and review to support learning, and learners view and listen to their own performance to aid identification of how they can improve their knowledge, skills, and attitudes, and it's an increasingly common component of debriefing. And I'm just going to pause there, Vic, and say in 2015, they were writing, this is becoming increasingly common. But actually in my circle, I have to confess it's died off a lot. Um, and a lot of my colleagues have basically said that's too much extraneous load. It's not adding anything. I'm not doing it much anymore. How much do you use it? Uh, I agree. I think that had changed. When I first started in simulation, everybody was doing this. It was regarded as this is the thing. And sort of this is the thing where you show them what they didn't realise about themselves or this is the thing where you catch them out, which I don't think was how anyone intended it, but I think there was a sense that this was the value of uh, debriefing as it could show people just how they weren't as good as they thought they were. Maybe I'm being harsh. But I think a couple of things must have changed. One is I do think people realised how hard it was to do this well and I think we started to think we want more people doing debriefing reasonably well than trying to restrict it to only a very small number of people who've got the level of experience that can do this well. I think the other thing was it was about the time that Adam Cheng's uh, systematic review of debriefing came out and he only had three studies in that that related to video-assisted debriefing. But on the basis of that, I don't know if they meant this quite strongly, but I think the outcome was this doesn't help, it doesn't make any difference. And I think some people at least were quite influenced by that. I think it's just, as you will no doubt talk about, it's just really hard to know how to measure what the benefit of it is. But I certainly know, and this comes up in the paper obviously, that the cognitive load of doing it for a debriefer is really high. Yeah. And so no, we don't do we don't do video assisted debriefing at all where I'm working at the moment. 
simply because we want to have a pretty consistent experience. We do so much in situ and I think to get enough technical stuff to the bedside to be able to have really good playback to the point where you want it. Now you're talking about pretty fancy stuff that requires some setting up and some complexity. I don't think that there's a huge amount to be gained over just a good conversation in that context. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. And I use it a lot um, in a certain type of sim. So particularly when we're doing our communication course. And I almost feel like I use it less for a traditional debrief though, but I'll often sometimes use it as a little bit of a play-by-play where we just, okay, I'm just going to narrate this and make some observations based on the words that have been used here and the impact on the team's performance. So, yeah, I think part of what motivated me with grabbing this paper was, A, it was shared by our friend Ian Summers a few months ago, uh, and B, I think there is a place for it still, and I think it's a useful paint to have on your palette in debriefing uh, in the right context if you've got the comfort with that particular medium. So let's explore what Christian and co found. So look, the article acknowledges, as you said, there's conflicting evidence in the literature regarding the benefits of this, but that most commentators argued there is a place for it as an adjunct in debriefing. Methods-wise, there were 66 peer-nominated expert debriefers identified through an existing simulation educator network in Australia, and that was then pared down to about 24 debriefers uh, from a range of clinical and educational contexts, and the authors described their selection criteria including being multiple uh, multiple nominations from uh, other people who are nominating as an expert, and then a diversity of spread both regionally and clinically. And they ended up with a nice mix of 24 doctors, nurses, paramedics, and allied health professionals who'd been debriefing on average or a mean of 9.7 years. So I'm guessing it was Christian based on the anesthetic uh, background of the person doing the interviews, but uh, the people were interviewed for about 45 to 90 minutes. And after their qualitative analysis, they came up with four main things. The use of video-assisted debriefing, the impact of the audio-visual systems themselves, specific educational approaches, and balancing the benefits and limitations. And I don't think there's anything hugely revolutionary here, but it was nice to sort of go through and benchmark internally for me, my thoughts. So they described there was a large degree of variability in using video during debriefing, with some using it all the time and some rarely. And interestingly, it was referred specifically as a tool multiple times, which I think would be consistent with this thinking of it as an adjunct or a very specific technique that needs to be used to achieve a certain goal. People reported that mostly they tended to use short focus clips and some would preview the video to provide learners with a purpose or something to focus on while watching. Some described it as a useful for its objectivity and that they appreciated that sometimes that could mean it was an objective conversation starter that meant they didn't have to load with their own frames or assessments of the performance Uh, and also that it can be useful for demonstrating positive practice. Uh, Multiple people emphasised you shouldn't use it to shame people. And interestingly, one thing that I had never sort of thought would I would use it for was just someone saying that actually during the break on their courses, sometimes they just let the whole pet scenario play out and people would like to watch it while they're eating and reflect if they wanted to. There was an acknowledgement that for this to work, you really need a good enough system. As you've mentioned, you need high quality video and ability to mark chapters on the fly and one that's good quality, but also simple enough that it's not extraneous load on your debriefing. 
I thought one individual sort of observation that really stuck out for me was uh, one interviewee who said, look, learners value being able to observe themselves and do personal reflection. And I think we underestimate that. That's why I like showing videos now because they will look at themselves and they may not share it with the group and they may be too embarrassed to share something with the group, but they do see themselves and they see themselves and they see what's happened and they can actually put it into the framework of what we're talking about, bigger picture. And I thought this was a really lovely capture from whoever said that of something that's impossible to measure and a little bit like the other papers we've talked about, sometimes invisible and unnamed and unseen, but an important component to the learning. And I think that would be an easy thing to undervalue when it comes to being just a simple opportunity to see yourself perform. So overall, for me, this paper didn't perhaps change my perspective much on video-assisted debriefing, but it did provide some nice granularity for me regarding the benefits and also some alternative strategies that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's plenty in it, and it does seem like it's screaming out for the partner article of uh, learner perceptions of video-assisted debriefing, doesn't it? Uh, to see what people thought, not necessarily as a comparison, but what is the value and what might be the detracting things. Uh, because I think there is some cognitive load. And I do remember a significant number of people coming up and saying, oh, can we get the video to take home? And they wanted to watch the whole thing. And I went, oh, we don't normally watch the whole thing. We just watch these little snippets that I decide what you're going to watch. Uh, but I think there was definitely a, a hunger for what you're just talking about. And I, I think we don't know if that's problematic or beneficial or whatever but clearly some of those participants thought it might be going to be beneficial so uh yeah i i think the complexity for debriefers is probably the barrier that i see around the place but you know uh, i'm surprised at how little we see written actually yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, it is just so much extraneous load a lot of the time and you have your tech hiccups and you're trying to get to the right track and it's, it can be hugely distracting. But I think mm-hmm. for me I'm informed a bit by how big an impact of seeing myself in um, Sims early on in my career was to learning effective team leadership, particularly mm-hmm. as a, an introvert, like watching myself on screen and realising how soft that voice is and how unclear it is for people in the room and stuff and getting coached for that in the moment it's actually a really big thing for Mm. me at the time so i think when done well it can be really useful Mm. yeah excellent i uh my last thought about this is just a ping back to the meta debrief club article we did where i remember them saying if you have just one camera in your sim program pointed at the debriefer and, and again, it'd be nice to see this similar kind of rigorous work done with something like video-assisted faculty development in debriefing. And I wouldn't be surprised if something like you and your debrief academy buddies are doing that kind of work. Well, we also are very excited to have Dan Hufton from the Meta Debriefing Club coming over soon. Hopefully, visa's working out. So uh, we're already sort of licking our lips for a Southeast Queensland outreach Meta Debriefing yeah. Club. Fantastic. Good. Mm. Well, Ben, it's been lovely as always to have a little chat about things. Um, We will, of course, be back in December so that people have got some Christmas listening. I think we should try and see if we can get Jess and Jesse to join us for that one. Maybe we could be Uh, April. Otherwise, you and I will continue to carry the heavy workload that is the Simulcast Journal Club. But thanks again, Ben. Uh, We look forward to it. Simulcast listeners signing off from us and uh, hoping you have a great month. Absolutely. Happy birthday, Desi. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.